Good morning, church. Good morning. Children in kindergarten to third grade seem like they already got their cue. They're heading out the doors. Very good. And we are going to share together in our memory verse for the month of August. It is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. Let's say it together. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Wonderful truth. Yeah. Sorry, I missed that. <laughs> too excited about the truth of that verse. <laughs> we repeat our monthly memory verse every week in the month before we switch to a new memory verse the next month. And we do that for one reason, because repetition is a key for instruction. It's a key for instruction that we use for our children. We use it with youth. We use it even into our adulthood. It turns out that we actually repeat ourselves quite a bit. And some mornings I kind of think to myself jokingly, if, uh, if I were to record like seven phrases, I could probably hit play and leave it go off in my home and it would be enough to cover what needs to be said on any given day. Shut the door, be nice to one another, listen to your mom, would you knock it off? You know, I mean repeating over and over again. We all do this to some extent in our homes. Hopefully where our children and family are hearing phrases such as, I love you, Jesus loves you, be kind. These are common and regularly on repeat in our homes because they communicate important and substantial truths. And through repetition, we imprint important scriptures, important prayers, creeds, definitions on the hearts and the minds of those that we're closest to. And as we open our text today, we continue in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, looking at verses 17 to 24, we are going to recognize Paul's use of repetition. It's intentional use. For the people of God in Corinth who we're coming to Jesus for the first time as adults from all different lifestyles and backgrounds. Many had found themselves wrestling with their particular calling in life. Was it enough? Were they enough? And as God draws us together as the family of God under Jesus Christ, we find ourselves unified and one in Jesus, yet at the same time, diverse in our backgrounds and our life experiences. Some in Corinth were coming to Jesus. They had been circumcised. Others had come to a knowledge of the truth while being held in bondage. Some were married. Others were single. Still others had experienced divorce. And today our churches are made up of the same diversity of life experiences and backgrounds. Some come with young children. Others have grown children. Why others have not been called to parent. Some work in technology. Others work in cosmetology. Some are teachers. Others are plumbers. Some will employ. Others will be employees. And while our primary call to salvation is same, we are diverse in our other life callings and assignments. And so there's something that we use in coaching that's common to this repetition, and it's called a coaching cue. 
And all great coaches use the concept of a coaching cue. And when it's, a, it's a phrase or a word that when used, it becomes like second nature to the athlete. In fact, athletes hear these cues so often repeated that they become ingrained in their minds, contributing to something in sports that we call muscle memory. Some of you have heard that before. When the going gets tough and the competition heats up and the pressure to succeed is on, great coaches rely on the cues that they have taught their athletes and coached over the course of their time together to help them find success wherever they are competing. In our text today, Paul is acting as a good coach. He's building into his team, the church. There's a coaching cue here. And when we wrestle with our calling or assignment in life, what should we be keeping in our minds? What wisdom does Paul offer for those who are unsure whether they should marry or stay single? Whether they should become parents or not. Whether they should move on from this particular job or station in life to another or remain. And when wrestling with our current calling and assignment in life, Paul gives us precious truth to motivate us to continue to live for Christ right where he has planted us. So you want to take your Bibles this morning or your Bibles that are on your devices And turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Today we're looking at verses 17 to 24. Before we read the text, let's pray together. Father, as we gather as the body of Christ today, here and at home, we know that your spirit is working even now through the power of your word. It's living, it's active. We enter this time with open hearts and minds prepared to receive truth from your word that's always relevant for us today. And we're thankful for that, Lord. There's instruction that Paul has here for the church that he was ministering to. But Lord, today we are the same church under the same lordship of your son, Jesus Christ. And so the truths that Paul communicated long ago to the people of God in Corinth, they are still for us here. And so our prayer as we gather around these pages is that we would discover and be able to learn and apply the truth that you have for us, that we would leave here with a desire to glorify you by growing in our love for you and our love for one another. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 17. See if you can pick up the repetition as we read. Only let each person... Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. 
Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant to Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. The crux of the matter for this entire chapter is found in verses 17, repeated again in verse 20, then again finally repeated one more time in verse 24. And these verses that Paul is laying out and explaining to us, they push against the social forces in our culture that might tell us that we need to be something in order to be someone. There are pressures, friends. Many of you feel them all around us to gain some form of social status through identifying as something. For the single, there's pressure to marry. To those who have chosen to not yet parent or may never be called to parent their own children, there is pressure towards parenthood, towards those feeling enslaved and trapped in their profession. Pressure to either lock in or seek a new career. And while these pressures are often well-meaning, they tend to communicate, intentional or not, something related to the value of our social status within our communities. And in our words and in our actions, sometimes, church, we can communicate that we value one form of social status above another, or that one social situation may perhaps be more advantageous to a person than another. Yet the truth remains that no symbol of social status ranks above our eternal status as sons and daughters of God. Church, not all of us will carry the title of husband or wife. Not all in our congregation will be mom or dad. Some will be called to remain in difficult jobs. Others will be called to seek new opportunities. Paul's instructions in verses 17, 20, and 24 are hewn from this landmark concept that kind of governs his overall teachings and understanding of the gospel. We find it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Regardless of our ethnic background, our current socioeconomic status, or even our gender, our oneness as a people of God in Christ is rooted in the person of Jesus. Here we find our greatest source of unity and strength. And keeping this in view then, each should live as he or she is assigned and called. And both of those words are important to us. The fact that we are assigned and that we are called. The Lord will not assign to us something that he has not already called us to. So God is deeply, sovereignly, providentially involved in every aspect of our lives. Knowing not only details such as when we will be born, but also 
placing us in the exact communities that he desires for us to live within. Acts chapter 17 alludes to this. And he, speaking of God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Church, have we taken the time to consider that our homes, our neighborhoods, our jobs, places of employment, our families, even when they are difficult, and sometimes they are, are part of our assignment and calling from the Lord. We are to bloom where God has planted us. And none of the relationships or experiences from our past are accidents. Our current state or situation in life is not surprising at all to God. He is not sitting up at heaven saying, Oh, wow, I, I really thought he'd be married by now. I don't know what, I don't know what, what he's holding up for. Man, look at all these ladies I've just kept bringing him. I don't know. He's not up there sitting, well... I sure never thought that she'd take that job. Whoa, man, no wonder she's miserable. That wasn't the one I had planned for. And none of these things are accidents. Every place we are, we are because God has determined that that is where we should be in that season of our lives by his design according to his purpose. He places us and puts us exactly where he wants us. He gives us and calls us exactly as he has determined some in here work with their hands. Others sit at a desk. Some are called to homeschool their children. Others place their children in private schools or public schools or even today in virtual institutions. Some will teach. Others will have different callings. Some will be prayer warriors. Others will be called to give sacrificially. Still others to serve. Earlier in his letter... Paul's already reminded us that there are some who will reap while others sow, reminding us that it is God who brings the increase. Paul's rule for all the churches in the opening of our text, including our church today, is to live the life that you were assigned and called to as unto the Lord himself. Church, I understand the pressures on us to be something different than, than we currently are. They're out there. That's what social media is, by the way. It's pressure to be and to live as something that we're not. Oftentimes, we scroll and we scroll and we scroll, and is anybody satisfied at the end of that endless list of scrolling? There's a thousand voices all around us at all times telling us we're not enough. We have to be more. We have to look better, do better in some way. And Paul is giving us a surefire way to tuck those voices into bed, to put them away, and to live in the season and the assignment in which we have currently been called. And while this is both comforting, it's comforting to me to know that even through difficulties, where I am today is right where the Lord would want me to be. And, and it's affirming, does it really work? Or is this some easier said than done ideal that Paul's just trumpeting to his people? 
in the muck and mire and the grind of everyday, day-to-day life, what does this look like? And Paul won't leave us hanging out to dry here. Rather, what he's going to do is he's going to give us two illustrations to show us how this coaching cue might look when applied to two common life circumstances. Look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek the removal of the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Okay, now, I'm going to take a quick pause here because there are young ears in our congregation that I am not certain if all understand what circumcision is. So bear with me while I gently explain what circumcision was so that our young listeners can understand what Paul is talking about here. Circumcision in this context is a medical procedure where a doctor removes a piece of skin from a male's private area. That's about as gentle as I can keep it on a Sunday morning. If you have more questions, ask your parents. (laughs) Or email me at jdavis at (laughs) calvarymonument.org. In the Jewish culture of those days, this form of surgery, this procedure, was a traditional identifying mark of a Jewish male. It also served as an incredible symbol or sign of social status and identity. And Paul's teaching regarding circumcision was very controversial and revolutionary in the church that he was ministering to. In fact, his teaching found itself in direct conflict with the Jewish law that actually required circumcision for all males. Paul's conclusion, as a former Jewish man himself, remember he boasted about this, a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the seventh day. Talked about it, right? And his conclusion was that the circumcision of the heart inward was of the highest priority. That physical circumcision was no longer a requirement for a Jewish male. This was really troubling to some in the church. Look at his instructions in Romans chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. He's talking about circumcision there. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit of God, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. While Paul concluded that circumcision was no longer necessary, he also balanced that out with an understanding of its importance within the Jewish faith communities. Which is why he takes one of his new and upstart young converts who came from a Greek family and decided that because he was going to be assigned to minister in predominantly Jewish context, that this young convert should be circumcised. And so if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul took Timothy. And Timothy, as a male, grown, needed to be circumcised. And the reason that Paul takes this approach with Timothy is because of what Timothy's specific ministry and assignment was going to be. 
An uncircumcised Timothy would have been a stumbling block to a predominantly Jewish audience. An audience that God had called and assigned Timothy to minister to. So Paul then counsels Timothy to do something practical, practical to increase Timothy's reception and thereby effectiveness among the people that he had been called and assigned to give ministry to. For Timothy to live more effectively within his calling and assignment, circumcision was a helpful direction for him to pursue. But back in the Corinthian church, word had gotten out regarding Paul's teachings about circumcision, and some, because of the social pressures of their day, had sought to remove the marks of this procedure. Now, I have no idea how that was done. Ask your parents. Um, I don't know. Ask a doctor. But this would have had been an especially concerning thing to a male athlete in that culture, where nudity was culturally acceptable and common in the gymnasiums and the stadiums where they were competing. The marks of circumcision, if revealed to the broader community, may have led for that person to a loss of social standing or status. For others who converted to Christianity later in life, but now found themselves living in communities that were still largely influenced by Judaism, there may have been social pressure put on them to pursue this surgical procedure. Paul says, concluding in verse 19 and continuing through this text, live as you were called. Look at what he says in verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what? Keeping the commandments of God. So what's he saying? Rather than, than being consumed with what might be socially expected and all of the pressures around us regarding these matters that to some may appear to be spiritual but really have no any weight on our godliness, Paul's instruction is to stay focused on what really matters. Primarily in Paul's teaching throughout his letters, what really matters is keeping the commandments. Commandments which Paul will remind in his letter to the law-loving Galatians uh, that can be summed up in one phrase. Remember, Paul summed up all of the law in one phrase. He said this, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And not so ironically, the context of this chapter of Galatians is bathed in Paul's teaching regarding circumcision. Same chapter, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself out through love. And again in chapter 6, verse 15, harping on this matter to discern, disarm those who would attempt to make this procedure count for something spiritually. He concludes, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Here again, Paul's instruction ties back into and comes together on the foundation of Jesus Christ who makes us church. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And he calls us to live according to the ways and purposes for which we have been recreated. 
ways and purposes that can be summed up in the word love. I'll say this gently, church. Doing things that might look spiritual or be considered as spiritual in order to please people is far less important than remaining in your calling as a new creation governed by the law of love. And Paul concludes in verse 20 what he's already stated and written in verse 17 and what he will again write in verse 24. Look at what he says. Each one should remain in the condition in which he or she was called. And he's now moving us towards a second illustration of how remaining in one's calling might work itself out. Paul is addressing now one who finds themselves enslaved. And I think it's necessary, I wanted to this morning, pause here and identify this. In America, what we typically know and understand as slavery is very different than the slavery that was practiced in ancient Rome. Slavery in ancient Rome was not based on a person's race or skin color. But let me be unequivocally clear this morning that slavery in any form is wrong, it's sin, and it grieves the heart of God. The one who practices, endorses, participates in, contributes to, or facilitates slavery in any of its form ignores the image of God, both the dignity and the personhood of the one or the many that they hold in bondage. Slavery is a practice that was perpetuated by individuals, often as they were empowered, encouraged, endorsed, and allowed by their governments who framed statutes and laws that poured fuel on the flames of this injustice. And in the context of our passage this morning, Paul is going to take up the cause of the bonded servant, which is one form of slavery. And by the way, friends, Slavery has not ended. In fact, this form, indentured servitude, bonded servants, is a form that's still alive and well today. Recent statistics reveal that some 8 million people in the world today are considered indentured servants and held as bonded slaves. Bonded labor often thrives in countries that are severely overwhelmed by poverty, or places that are governed by a caste system form of government. And today, bonded labor and its similar forms, which you may have heard of before, debt bondage or involuntary domestic servitude, are three of the major inroads that researchers have identified leading towards human trafficking. Three of the ways that human traffickers use to perpetuate their crimes. These three forms of slavery, not just an ancient sin, a sin that's still happening today. In its simplest definition, a bonded servant is a person who is bound to service without wages. And this type of slavery in America was formally and legally ended in 1865. However, as we've already heard, just because it's no longer legal does not mean that it no longer happens. And I would encourage this for further study today. 
If you would like to learn more about the modern forms of slavery and how they're still perpetuated throughout our world and how God might call and work through you and assign to you a way that you may help to bring an end to slavery as it exists today, I would encourage you towards further exploration at www.endslaverynow.org. By addressing the cause of the bonded servant here in our text, Paul is showing a concern and a care for their circumstance. His words here are expressing compassion towards their state. By elevating the cause of the bonded servant here, Paul is affirming both their dignity and their personhood. He did not have to choose to use the bonded servant as an illustration, but he did for a purpose, for a reason. And it elevated them within the role and the status that they found themselves in in life. Verse 21. Were you a bonded servant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. What Paul's talking about in parentheses there was a practice that was called manumission in ancient Rome. And this concept of manumission was the practice where a slave was able, together with his master, to help earn or gain their freedom. Paul is saying to the bondservant that their social status as a slave has no authority, no weight over their eternal status as a born-again saint. But while they were on earth, if they were able, they were to pursue their freedom. He affirms this again, actually, in verse 23. And as we are considering this, we are reminded that though we might be called in one particular state, the Lord may choose not to keep us in that assignment or calling, but rather, in His timing, on His determination, He may move us to a new assignment and a new calling. However, for those who were slaves who were in Christ and unable to secure their freedom, there's a powerful reminder here of our common position. Look at verse 22. For He who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So, for the one who is in bondage here on earth, and for the one who lives in freedom, there's this paradoxical truth that remains. All are free, and all are held in bondage. In Christ. And let's ex- we're going to explain and lay that line of reasoning out from the scriptures here. As we said from the beginning, Paul's decree to the church is that there is no free or slave. Rather, all are considered free, all are considered as slaves. And the line of reasoning goes as follows It was Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us or free us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So that, Romans chapter 6, having been set free from sin, we've become slaves of righteousness. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. 
the truth is what Paul's using to move us towards this most sacred and precious conclusion, one that he's already communicated, but now even so is powerfully reminding us of in verse 23. Look at this beautiful sentence. It was our devotions Wednesday night in prayer meeting. You were bought with the price. Do not become bondservants of men. Paul's using repetition again, is he not? We've seen this line before in this letter. He last used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6.20 where the context involves refraining from participating in sexual immorality. It's the first verse, uh, first part of this verse in 23 that within us should provoke great thankfulness. And when Paul takes up the cause of the bonded servant, he's leveling the playing field for the one who would have been considered in that day as among the least of these. He's reminding the bonded servant, church, he's reminding us that we are precious to God. We've been bought with a price. And think about this. You consider the wonder of our God. His goodness and His grace, His immeasurable power, His immovable and unchanging nature, His need for nothing, and yet He desires us. He loves us. God loves you. He loves you. So much so that He purchased us. And it wasn't cheap. It was for a rather steep price. The blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The God of the universe. The hanger of the stars. The maker of the skies. The shaper of the seas. The one who formed the mountains. Who set the planets into orbit. Have you stopped to consider for one moment that same God purchased you by the blood of His Son, Jesus. We, church, belong to God. The God who needs for nothing certainly would not purchase something worthless, useless, or purposeless. And so, what this text confirms is we're given assignments. He places callings on our lives and he tells us to remain in him. He is our treasure. We belong to him and he gives himself to us. God fills us with the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And in light of all of those truths, what does it matter how someone in this world might define or describe us? We talk a lot about the uncomfortable times that we're living in in today's world, the uncertain times that we're living in today's world. Well, guess what? It shouldn't feel comfortable down here for us. It shouldn't. And perhaps now more than ever as believers, we are living exactly as we've been called as aliens and sojourners and foreigners in this strange place that we've been called and assigned to live in, yet we know we're not fitted for. He's got something far, far, far more remarkable than what we're experiencing here. Church, we are best defined and described by the one that we belong to. He calls us his children. He lavishes his love upon us. He raises us up and seats us with Christ. We are his family, his people, his chosen and royal 
priesthood. He has set us apart with this purpose of glorifying Him through growing us in our love for Him and our love for one another. The price with which we've been bought, Jesus' blood, transcends any title, symbol, or social status ascribed or prescribed to us here on earth. Jesus is far greater. There's a lot of pride, a lot of shame that gets tossed around out there regarding our social standing and platform, is there not? Be more, do more, achieve more, earn more, get that promotion. You don't like where you're at? Go find a new job. Church isn't meeting your needs? Go get another one. Spouse isn't doing it for you anymore? Find another one. Just boot consumer everything all around us, voices all the time. Can we ever be enough? Can we ever truly measure up to the voices in our When the blood of Jesus, when the blood of Jesus was applied to our lives and our eternity found its security in Him, Jesus' it is finished became our it is enough. Church, you are enough because of Jesus. And while on earth, if our focus is on pleasing men, we will never be enough. We're always going to find ourselves in bonded labor with a crummy master who holds on to our debt, adding interest that outpaces anything we could possibly do to try to catch up and pay it down. But because Jesus was enough to satisfy God's wrath, He can declare us enough as well. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. We are now righteous enough. His worthiness now is ours. We too now are worthy enough. His holiness becomes our holiness. We are holy enough. His strength perfected in our weakness because of Jesus. We are strong enough, church, to carry through, to endure, to persevere. The enough that all of us long for the enough that we sometimes find ourselves enslaved to is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. We are free from the lie that we will never measure up. John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Church, enough is enough. It is enough. And we must live above the demand of men and according to the call of God on our lives. That is what Paul wants us to understand in this chapter. It's why he repeats himself over and over and over again in this text. Look at his final words in verse 24. Repetition. So, brothers and sisters... In whatever condition each was called, there let them remain with God. Now there is a common condition that we all share when we're called. We're all sin-filled and in need of Jesus when he calls us unto salvation. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. 
He's talking about the unique conditions within the world that God has planted us in. Some of us will be wealthy. Some of us will live in poverty. Some will be farmers, others bankers, others lawyers and politicians and carpenters. Some will be married, others single. Some will have physical limitations. Others will live without those physical limitations. Regardless of the place where we are planted, if we remain in that place with our minds set on the things above, we will bloom and fulfill the calling that God has placed in our lives. As I was reading and studying this text the other week, a chapter of John kept coming to mind. You remember we spent a few years in John a few years ago. Maybe not a few. Actually, it might have been a few years. Uh, John chapter 15 just kept coming back to it over and over and over again in this chapter. You may remember the words in chapter 15, verse 4. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And so we've been asking this question as we've studied this chapter together, from the ver- this book together from the very beginning. How can we live as disciples of Jesus and function together as his church in an overwhelmingly unbelieving world? Abiding in Christ, we live according to our calling, not as unto man, but rather as unto God. We're going to pray and take some time to prepare our hearts for communion this morning, and then we'll participate in communion together. If you're participating with us at home today, now is the time to get what probably is the much more attractive and enjoyable communion elements ready than what we have here in our building, but we will share in that time of fellowship together. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Paul's reminders in our text here today. There is so much in this world that would call us to think that we are somehow not enough in you, that somehow your son left something up there on the cross that we need to grab hold of and try to earn on our own efforts, and yet your word reminds us in so many places that Jesus paid it all. And we are so thankful for that. Lord, as the pressures surround us and the current circumstances of the day weigh in, I pray that we grab hold of the truth that we are to live exactly where you have assigned us and called us to, not as unto men, but as unto you Help us to serve one another, to love one another, to, as Jesus described, lay down our lives for one another. Lord, we prepare our hearts and our minds now for communion, and we do celebrate that Jesus came, and we're thankful that he went to the cross. As horrific as it was, he endured its shame and its punishment, and he shed his blood to atone for our sins. Lord, we know that it was only through your divine knowledge and divine plan that he was able to do this and only through your strength that he accomplished this for us. And we give you glory today. We thank you that by his wounds we are healed. We pray, Lord, that we would remember and that we would proclaim not only his death, but, Lord, his glorious resurrection so beautifully communicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that gives us such wonderful and hopeful assurance for what our future holds because your son 
defeated death, we too will live. As he lives, we shall also live. And we give you the glory for that today, Father. Thank you for this time. We pray that you would superintend over it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.